Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here with my co-host again, like always, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are we doing today? My co-host, Sean, always a pleasure to be here. On <laughs> yeah, good. So we have a special guest uh, back for round two. Uh, this is a um, this is awesome because I know we talked about bringing her back for round two and we brought her back so fast because her last episode was such a blockbuster and we had a lot of fun talking with her. So Dr. Deborah Megan Sanft, welcome back to the show, Megan. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> good, good. So um, last time we were talking about cataract surgery, this time we're going to be talking about eye emergencies. And uh, we thought we would just, you know, go back and forth uh, between Bruno and I and talk to you about different uh, common eye emergencies or maybe not so common. I guess you can dive into that as um, we're going through. So I wanted to kick it off talking a little bit about corneal ulcers. Um, A lot of us have heard about corneal ulcers. They can be bacterial, fungal, et cetera. So maybe you can just share some uh, thoughts on what corneal ulcers are, what causes them, how they're treated, et cetera. So uh, I'll probably just start by going over briefly what the cornea is. So the cornea is the clear part of the front of the eye that we all look through. And we like when it's clear and we like when it stays clear. It has five layers. So the epithelium, which is the layer that's Um, closest to the eyelids, then Bauman's layer, the stroma, decimase layer, and the endothelial cell layer. And the endothelial cell layer is what's most on the inside of the eye. So a corneal ulcer is when there's an epithelial defect. So that surface layer has a break in it. Um, There can be stromal loss or inflammation of the stroma or any combination of these changes. So that's sort of the medical way to explain a corneal ulcer. And like you said, there are so many causes and I've heard some crazy corneal ulcer stories. Probably the weirdest one that comes to mind is someone who's playing with her puppy and the puppy's nose booped her in her terms, it booped her eye and she ended up getting a bacterial corneal corneal ulcer. So um, that's probably the most common corneal ulcer that I see. In general, corneal ulcers present with a significant amount of pain. You get eye discharge. It could either be watery or either yellow, greenish, mucus kind of discharge. And oftentimes because of the nature uh, of the epithelial loss and the inflammation, the patient will note blurry vision as well as a sensitivity to light. So that's sort of how they come into the emergency room or into the emergency ophthalmology clinic. And then from there, it's really becomes sorting out the history in order to give or to get clues as the possible origin of the problem. Um, Obviously, dogs are not the most common cause of this problem. Probably contact lens related uh, issues would be so sleeping in them, showering in them, going into lakes and pools in them is a huge, huge source of these uh, corneal ulcers. Um, and then from there, so maybe I'll start with uh, bacterial. So, like I said, contact lens wear is a huge risk factor, but there are other things that we look for in exam too that can give clues uh, eyelid abnormalities. So, things like floppy eyelid syndrome 
or people who have very prominent eyes or don't close their eyelids fully. Um, and for bacterial coronal ulcers, because there's so many different kinds of bacteria in the world, we always culture the lesion. And this is because sometimes we need to target the treatment therapy a little bit more specifically. So typically we start with a fortified drop regimen that's actually quite rigorous. And you really need to have patients who are able to comply um, to get this done. And they start every 30 minutes alternating between two drops. Um, so 30 minutes, drop one, then 30 minutes later, drop two, then 30 minutes later, back to drop one. So you could imagine after doing this for a few hours, it gets annoying, let alone for, you know, days uh, to weeks. Um, and of course, we always say, you know, no contact lens wear once this has happened. Um, and eventually they do or they can scar. So if there is a scar uh, in the end, depending on if it's in the visual access, uh, et cetera, we'll treat uh, the scar. Um, the other thing that we think about with contact lenses would be acanthamoeba. So this is quite uncommon. I'll say I've seen it maybe three times through all of my residency and my practice. And these are people who were you know, in bachelor parties in Vegas and they forgot their contact lens solutions and they were in the pool and swimming in them and sleeping in them. And then when their eyes felt dry, I kid you not, took out their contact lenses, licked them and put them back in. Like you have to be quite bad um, or unlucky to end up with an acanthamoeba infection. Um, it looks very, very different than a bacterial infection. And the thing that's most suspicious, I guess, that would raise the red flag that maybe there's an encanthamoeba affection would be there's a lot more pain um, than you would be than would be expected just based on examining them. So the eye might look not look so bad, but the person's in excruciating pain. Um, as it gets worse, the infection gets worse, the cornea gets this clear jelly like consistency almost and later can have other signs like a ring infiltrate or enlarged corneal nerves. And those are more pathognomonic for acanthamoeba, but they're also very late uh, in you know, the infectious process. So you kind of wanna catch it earlier, but it's not always that uh, obvious. Like I said, this is very commonly from contaminated water sources. 70% roughly is related to contact lens wear. Um, and the treatment for this is also drops, but can last a very, very long time, um, up to six to 12 months, even. That's a, that's an intense treatment regimen. So I love how you highlighted bachelor parties in Vegas. I feel like there's <laughs> there, I feel like maybe there's a patient that you had that decided to wear other contacts and a bachelor a party friend. in Vegas, yeah, a friend, <laughs> a, friend a, a podcast host. No, uh, <laughs> the, uh, we've definitely been to podcast. Uh, um, to bachelor parties in Vegas and I have definitely uh, back when I used to wear contact lenses um, been guilty of leaving them you know falling asleep I guess falling asleep is the politically correct term after you drank too much and then <laughs> closed, you closed your eyes in a bed and uh, passing it would be politically incorrect um, uh, with contact lenses in uh, I can't say I've ever licked them and stuck them back in my eyes though but I have definitely uh, been in the situation where I'm like I don't know if my contact's in or not and I think at many times I was like pulling on my corneas, trying to like take them out uh, because I couldn't tell if my contacts were in or not, um, et cetera. So uh, I, anyways, I digress. But talking about the um, 
different types of, you know, infections that I guess that can happen in the cornea. Um, is there something that other, other than, okay, making sure you don't lick your contact lenses and stick them in your eyes and, you know, take them out when you're swimming in uh, lakes and rivers, et cetera. So you don't get some sort of uh, entity trapped between your contact lens and, and your uh, cornea. Are there other precautions people should be taking to just keep the corneal surface healthy and make sure that they don't get um, these types of infections just on a, you know, a regular maintenance, you know, I brush my teeth every day kind of regimen. So uh, it really falls back onto contact lens wearing. So the typical person can get unlucky um, and develop an infection, but most ulcers bacterial or acanthamoeba related to contact lens wear. And the most common things that I hear are people that use daily contact lenses for a week, a month or longer. You know, they're called dailies for a reason. They really should only be used for that day. Um, not ever storing your contact lenses in tap water or lake water. There are special solutions for that. So just normal hygiene things um, and really wearing the contact lenses, you know, if they're weeklies, weeklies, monthlies, monthlies, and having good hygiene for them. And if you do accidentally sleep in them or shower in them or wear them into a body of water, even if it's a weekly or monthly, I would toss it and start with a fresh pair. It's just not the risk. Um, in general, lubricating your eyes and using artificial tears once in a while isn't a bad idea, but you know, the run of the mill patient with healthy eyes who isn't wearing contact lenses would have to find themselves sort of in an unusual situation in order to get a, a, a corneal ulcer. Um, and that's sort of what fungal makes me think of. So fungal ulcers are five to 10% of all ulcers. So a very, very small chance uh, of getting one of these, but most commonly this is trauma to the eye with a vegetable matter. So like a stick to the eye or you're on those off-roading things and you get a branch in the eye. Um, so this is sort of an unlucky situation to get it versus, you know, acanthamoeba, which is, you know, wearing contacts uh, and not taking care of them properly. Uh, fungal look very different. So when you examine a patient, it looks very fluffy, um, like this white cotton ball almost on the cornea. Um, or you could get an endothelial uh, plaque as well. Typically they get satellite lesions. So there's one bigger ball of fluff with littler ones scattered around. Um, again, this treatment is drop, so antifungals, but sometimes you even need to treat these with oral antifungals. Um, and then the last case would be neurotrophic. So these patients are usually having decreased corneal sensation for a variety of reasons. And this can lead to a deep, or they have a decreased ability to blink. So things would be like Bell's palsy where you lose the ability to adequately close your eyelid. And this again, falls into someone who once had a normal eye that gets unlucky with something like Bell's palsy. Um, and they're not used to needing to lubricate their eye frequently because normally when you blink, your eyelids take care of that for you. So you have to lubricate very, very frequently with creams and ointments all the time. Um, and these can be prevented when they happen. They're not fun, but they can more easily be prevented uh, or predicted, let's say, than bacterial or fungal infections. These also do look quite different than the others because they have raised ro rolled edges, which are pathognomonic for neurotrophic ulcers. Um, 
but like I said, uh, when we are thinking of what can you do in everyday life to prevent them, it really falls back to corneal uh, care, uh, rather contact lens care. Uh, I, I would tend to assume that the corneal uh, uh, adhesions uh, will probably be the, the number one cause of uh, someone looking uh, looking for care, uh, at least as eyes are concerned, because it's so sensitive and also so exposed. Uh, and not everything is so serious, right? Sometimes it's just an eyelash that fell on the eye or, or, or maybe the patient rubbed the eye too hard or like a, a minor scratch or maybe a sunburn. And then it's very symptomatic. And uh, sometimes the patients like trying to fix the problem by themselves tend to make it worse. So uh, would you give any advice there like for a patient that it's having any foreign body sensation or their eyes are bothering a bit and like what not to do and, and when uh, they should seek medical care? Sure. So in terms of uh, foreign body sensation, I usually describe that to patients as feeling like a sand is inside the eye or a gritty feeling inside the eye. When patients describe that primarily, I talk about lubricating the eyes frequently. So artificial tears, the way I like to explain it to patients is that it's the same idea as hand lotion, but for your eyes. So it's not a medication, it's really meant for lubrication. And just like in the winter, for example, everyone's hands get so dry and we're purelling all the time and we're, we get flaky. We put as much hand cream on as we need, even if it's every 30 minutes, we don't think twice about it. And that's sort of how I like to explain artificial tears or lubricating the eyes to patients. When the eyes are dry and we get that feeling that it's super uncomfortable, we could lubricate as much as we need in order to get rid of that feeling without the risk of the eyes becoming addicted to artificial tears because there isn't actually a medication in there that creates a dependence. Some people like how it feels so they end up using it more and more but it's not a de physical dependence uh, that's created by the eyes. And then just remind me what the second part of the question is. Well, oh, when to seek medical care. So yeah. in ophthalmology, one of the big uh, worrisome things is a change in eyesight. So blurry vision, decreased vision, um, feeling like you're not seeing as clearly as before. Those are all things that should get a patient to be seen right away. Uh, red eyes that aren't getting better. Um, can also be an indicator of a lot of things going on. So I would suggest that as well. But definitely any changes in the eyesight should cause a patient to uh, get seen urgently. All right, that's helpful. Uh, changing topic a bit, uh, uh, let's talk about glaucoma. Uh, so glaucoma is also usually known as the silent uh, killer, right? a very slow progressing disease with uh, uh, no symptoms at all and uh, it is it sometimes comes as a surprise that glaucoma can be an emergency and, and can be painful as well so can you can you explain uh, to, to us what kind of glaucoma is an emergency and what kind of symptoms uh, uh, does it usually present yeah so the, like you said there are two different kinds of glaucoma um, broadly speaking so there's primary uh, open angle glaucoma, which is the one that most people think of when they think about glaucoma. 
Um, and in this situation, the drainage system of the eye is considered open. The one that's an emergency is acute angle closure glaucoma. So the drainage system inside the eye is not working properly anymore. And the pressure inside the eye goes extremely high, extremely fast. So when this happens, patients have excruciating pain of their eyeball, very bad headaches, blurry vision, colored halos around lights from corneal swelling that might happen. Um, and they even often present with severe nausea and vomiting. And these things in and of themselves are bad enough to bring patients to the hospital quite quickly. Whereas with open angle glaucoma, it's something that's usually found by an eye care professional on a routine visit to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist. So that's the big differentiating factor. And like I said, this could be, you know, uh, quite uh, an involved topic to delve into, but for the purposes of understanding what's going on, I'll, I'll keep it on the simple side. So the drainage system that I'm referring to is a drainage system inside the eye. There's liquid inside the eye that's continually being produced and the eye needs to leave through this drainage system. So the sy drainage system can be blocked physically, it can be pulled shut or it can be clogged. And what's dangerous about this, as I was saying, is when the pressure goes really high, really fast, the optic nerve, which is the nerve inside the eye that lets us see, gets very unhappy by this high pressure. And in a very short period of time, the eyesight may be irreversibly damaged. So this is one of the things that you hear about on the phone when the emergency room doctor calls you in the middle of the night that your shoes are on before you're hanging up the phone. It's one of those real ophthalmological emergencies. So just uh, talking about that as being a, a real emergency, Megan, um, what are some of the most common causes of that, um, that, you know, that blockage or, or you know, blockage or clogging of that drainage system? Like what are the, uh, I guess, yeah, most commonly reported uh, causes of that? So there are a lot of causes. Um, without overly complicating things, you can get scarring in the drainage system, little adhesions. You could also get abnormal blood vessels that grow into that drainage system. And it can create a membrane that will eventually pull the drainage system shut. As well, when cataracts start to take up more space in the eye, behind the cataract live, lives behind the iris and it can push from behind the drainage system closed. Those are probably the two most common things that I see can that can cause it. Um, and unfortunately, um, not always predictable and preventable. Um, yeah. No, no, and that's, and that's fair. Like I know this is a topic that we could you mm -hmm. probably spend a whole episode just talking about this and I'm sure people have, but I think it, you know, it gives a, um, it gives a bit of a, an overview. Okay. We're going to move on to another eye emergency because we're just going to grill you with eye emergencies today. That's kind of the, uh, uh, the topic of this, um, episode. So I wanted to talk about vascular occlusions. Um, I know there can be different types of vascular occlusions. So I'm hoping you can I say, I want to talk about it. I want you to talk about vascular occlusions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what are the different types of vascular occlusions? 
what causes them, why are they a concern for, uh, for patients, et cetera. Sure. So when we talk about vascular occlusions, there could be occlusions of the venous system or occlusions of the arterial system. And by occlusion, we're talking about blockages, just to put things in more simple terms. And these usually present with sudden painless vision loss. And those words, again, are things that would definitely get me out of the bed uh, in the middle of the night. And the reason for that is once vision is lost, sometimes it could be hard to get back. So I'll start with venous occlusions. The causes of venous occlusions most commonly is calcifications inside the retinal uh, blood vessels, um, most commonly arteries actually, but the artery then compresses a vein and this can secondarily cause a blood clot in the lumen or the center passageway of the vein. And a big risk factor for this is systemic hypertension. It's probably the most common systemic disease associated with venous occlusions. Glaucoma, the open angle kind, is actually probably the most common ocular disease associated with venous occlusions. There are also certain uh, medications or certain hypercoagulable states that the patient can be in that would predispose them to this. Um, this gets treated in conjunction with an internist or a family doctor. So um, the eye problem is one problem, but we know that it's a manifestation of something that's going in the whole body. So we work with either internal medicine or family medicine, or even sometimes the emergency room doctor, depending on where this patient presents first, to look at blood pressure, as well as lipids, cholesterol, um, in a younger patient, we might wanna know why they're clotting more. So we might send them to the hematologist. And of course we'd stop uh, any offending medications. Long-term, uh, we worry about the pressure inside the eyes. Uh, it can go up from having a vascular occlusion. Um, those abnormal blood vessels that I was talking about might grow. Um, as well, there can be swelling in the retina associated with this that might need to be treated with injections or lasers. So there's a lot of there's a lot of areas. Sorry, no, Bruno, go ahead, Bruno, go ahead. Yeah, no, like as we were started talking about vascular conditions, like we had one on the list here called giant cell arteritis, and uh, I at first I was kind of reluctant to have done the topic because I, I thought it would be rather uncommon, but then I checked the stats and like one person in five hundred experiences it. So uh, I think it's worth like maybe discussing a bit about it as well. Sure. So a good segue into giant cell arteritis would be to talk about arterial, arterial occlusions in general. So the presenting symptoms for arterial occlusions, again, sudden painless vision loss, and this is usually very, very severe vision loss, down to counting fingers or light perception. And there are many causes for this. So you could get uh, the many causes for the emboli. So you could get cholesterol emboli, fibrin emboli, which are like more like blood clots, or calcium emboli. And one cause that you always need to think about, especially in older patients, is giant cell arteritis. So giant cell arteritis um, presents again with sudden painless vision loss. It can usually starts with one eye, but can affect both. It's typically in patients that are 55 years and older and symptoms specific to giant cell arteritis are things like scalp tenderness. So patients say that when they're shampooing or brushing their hair, it's incredibly sensitive or even painful. 
something called jaw claudication, which is really just a fancy word for cramping. So when they're chewing uh, dinner, especially meat it off, or gum, they talk about chewing being hard or painful or exhausting. In general, muscles can feel weak and these patients can feel generally uh, unwell with loss of appetite, weight loss, uh, fever. The one thing that I will say is, uh, in general, arterial occlusions are treated like a stroke. So if I see a patient with an arterial occlusion, they get sent to the emergency room as you know, a code stroke, essentially, because they need to have special blood tests done, blood pressure check, carotid arteries checked, their heart checked. Um, and so once we make the eye diagnosis of an arterial, arterial occlusion, again, we're working with the emergency room team, um, internal medicine, family medicine, et cetera, to make sure the person in general is you know, doing well and not at risk of having another stroke. And giant cell arteritis is similar. So we'll see patients in the clinic and we can make the eye diagnosis um, based on clues that we see. But again, we need urgent blood tests done. They often get started on steroids very quickly. They might need a procedure called a temporal artery biopsy, which is a confirmatory test that needs to be done and is done by different services, sometimes plastic surgery, sometimes oculoplastics, depending on the site. So arterial occlusions and venous inclusions are ophthalmology working with people who can also look at the whole body. And it's one of the things that I find really cool because people think of ophthalmologists as just eye doctors, but sometimes we do find things going on elsewhere in the body by things that we find in the eyes. So it's kind of cool in that way. It's interesting you say that, um, the, you know, I've heard uh, just talking about, let's say for example, the retina, the optic nerve being an extension of the brain and how sometimes some of the changes you can see in the retina could be um, indicative of changes happening in the central nervous system in general, right? So, um, you know, the eye is very much a window to uh, other aspects of health um, in general, right? Which is what you, you know, you've alluded to. Um, okay, I want to talk about a topic that is uh, something we've all heard about, um, even people who have, you know, very little exposure to eye care ophthalmology, and that is uh, retinal tears or detachments. Um, I know, uh, I have family members. I've never personally had one, but I have family members who have had multiple retinal detachments. Um, I was hoping you can dive into that, talk about the, especially the most common causes of that, uh, you know, what that looks like. Um, is it truly an emergency? And if so, why, how do you treat it? You know, the whole nine yards, <laughs> serve, serve this one up and see what, see, try and tease out a lot of information. Cause it, it's something that's, uh, I think of interest to a lot of people. Sure. So retinal tears is probably a better uh, place to start than detachments because one can lead to the other. So retinal tears, often patients come in complaining of flashes. So they say that they're driving down the highway and all of a sudden they thought there was a lightning storm, but then they realized the flashes were coming from their eye. Um, they were walking down the street and they thought someone was taking pictures with a camera with flashes, but then they kept walking and then they realized the flashes were inside the eye. So really these flashes are a presenting complaint and then floaters. And floaters get described in so many ways because they mean different things to different people. But 
basically the most common ways that I've heard it described are like little mosquitoes or flies that are flying around inside the eye, little black spots that move as the eye moves, little dirt spots in, in the eye, or spider webs, cobwebs, lines that weren't there before that are inside the eye. And I think it's important to say that these symptoms do not always mean that there's a retinal tear. So the jelly inside the eye, which is called the vitreous, as we get older, it changes consistency and becomes more and more like water. So it's shrinking and wrinkling and it detaches from its attachments to the retina, which is the wallpaper of the eye. And this is called a posterior vitreous detachment. Posterior vitreous detachment in and of itself isn't an emergency, but we know that about 20% of eyes that have a symptomatic posterior vitreous deta detachment are either found at the time of initial exam or at a subsequent exam to have a retinal, uh, retinal uh, tear. So when patients come to the emergency room with these symptoms, we do tend to see them uh, quite quickly just to make sure that there isn't something more going on, something more being a retinal tear. So as that separation of the jelly or the vitreous is happening from the retina, sometimes the jelly can pull on the retina and this pulling can create a tear or break in the retina. So that's really what a retinal tear is. There's retina that becomes torn off either partially or completely from where it belongs anatomically. And the risk factors for this would be things like very high myopia or something called lattice degeneration. Um, a family history of retinal tears or detachment is a risk factor. So Sean, you should make sure you always get your eyes checked. And uh, trauma is, is another thing that can cause this. All right. So you, you just read my mind. <laughs> that would be my next question. Like we were talking about trauma. Um, uh, that particularly affects me because I, I have to deal that often. Or oh, people at the gym uh, being hit in the eye or being poked with uh, the opponent's uh, finger, things like that. And uh, you know, not all traumas are the same to the eye, right? Like I mean, not only in terms of uh, the type of trauma, but also the intensity. So I'll, uh, I mean, I'll let you dive into it and explain us like I mean, how I mean, the types of trauma and and when again, like when. Uh, uh, a person has to think about going to the hospital and not taking care of that on their own? Yeah, so various types of trauma can cause retinal tears or detachments. I would say usually it's a, more of a direct blow to the eye. And probably one of the most surprising stories that I ever heard when I was on call in residency was on New Year's, the cork from a champagne bottle flew off and hit someone in the eye and he ended up with multiple retinal tears. So, you know, that's sort of a unlucky uh, wrong place, wrong time situation. But just to give you an idea that things that happen that you would think would be relatively innocent in everyday life could cause problems. And I would say the time to go to the uh, get checked is if you're having either new floaters. So you never had floaters and you have floaters or you have the floaters that you're used to and you get a sudden increase in the amount of floaters, those black spots or cobwebs. That's not really normal typically, though it could just mean that that jelly is separating more. But the only way to know is to be seen. So 
I really think that if there's any change again in the eyesight or the floaters or the flashes that you get used to, then it's time to get checked. Um, I always tell my patients that the floaters that you have now are your friends at the party. And if more people show up uninvited, then you should get it checked out. And, and that's really how I feel about it because a change in symptoms is always something that's worth uh, getting checked. And a change in symptoms can also uh, bring us into our next topic of retinal detachment. So as I was saying, you get those flashes and floaters uh, can indicate that a tear has happened. And when there's a tear, the liquid vitreous can find its way through this tear or through the break into the retina and slowly peel that retina or detach it from the wall of the eye. And the change in symptom here is patients tend to describe this as a fixed dark spot. So before the little mosquitoes were flying around all the time, you look left, they fly left, you look right, they fly right. But now the patients are noticing that no matter where they look, there's always this fixed dark or black or gray spot in their vision. Um, or they feel like a curtain or a shadow has come down over part of their eyesight. And those symptoms um, are in keeping with a retinal detachment. And of course, if any of those symptoms happen, I would urge patients to go to the emergency room right away. Uh, more on trauma, like, so we talked about, uh, uh, like blows, right? And, uh, the eye is relatively resistant, but it, it can also be cut, right? I mean, so if there's a sharp instrument like going on it and, uh, is, is it, is it common? Is it rare? And, uh, uh, how can someone handle it until they go to the hospital? Because I assume that that's obviously a cause for them to do so. Just to clarify, do you mean the trauma causing a retinal detachment, what to do, or just trauma in general? No, uh, yeah, in general, like, let's say like a knife to the eye or oh. like a nail or anything that causes a, a cut that comes into the eye itself. And like, I assume that it's uh, a no-brainer that the per person should go to the hospital, but uh, what they should do until then, like do, should they put something in the eye or cover it somehow? So um, when you talk about a knife to the eye or someone being stabbed in the eye or a broken beer bottle to the eye, we always worry about something called a globe rupture. And those two words are enough to make most ophthalmologists' hearts uh, skip a few beats. Um, if someone is worried that the integrity of the eye is compromised, meaning that they feel that there's a laceration or a cut or a break in the eyeball itself, um, it's very important not to eat or drink because chances are, if that's the case, you're going to be having uh, surgery uh, with a short delay time. Not to put anything compressive on the eye. So people put those eye pads, uh, not the Apple Macintosh variety, but those gauze little eye pads, um, and they tape it tight onto the eye. And that's not good because if there is a break in the eye, by putting pressure on the surface of the eye, it forces the inside of the eye to come on the outside of the eye, which nobody wants to do. So the best thing um, is to take like a styrofoam cup and take it, tape it over the surface of the eye or something to protect it, or just to leave it alone um, and get to the emergency room as fast as possible. 
Oh, and that's uh, that's interesting that they talk about okay, putting a styrofoam cup. The first thing I think a lot of people would do is try to put like a patch and put some pressure and whatever. And they, just the uh, the thought about the inside of the eye coming outside made my heart skip a couple, a couple of beats. <laughs> so may, maybe on maybe on that note, we'll wrap up the eye emergencies here because uh, even though I have some background in this and Bruno has extensive background, um, it's starting to get. Uh, <laughs> starting to get heavy so yeah a little, a little too graphic we went from like you know oh a corneal ulcer to the inside of your eye coming out so we've gone we've gone we've gone the gamut i think here so no i know i know there's a lot of other ocular emergencies that can come up but i think we've uh, certainly touched on uh some of the ones that uh you know as you've mentioned before will have you you know with your shoes on out the door before you're even off off the call as the uh um, as the you know emergency ophthalmologist on call, so uh, I do appreciate you taking the time to share this knowledge with us. Um, it's it's a lot to digest, you know. Even for someone who's got some background in this, it's uh, just makes you realize how much smarter you are than me. <laughs> it's, it's, I wouldn't and, uh, necessarily say smarter. I would just say trained for five years specifically uh, in eyeballs. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd say smarter. So, <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, Megan, if uh, if like if we could leave like a word of advice, like just to summarize like everything we've discussed today, uh, would you agree that like less is more when it comes to first aid and and eye conditions? Like, I mean, when in doubt, do nothing. Like something like yeah, this. that's that's probably a good piece of advice. If you're not sure what's going on, if you have changes in your eyesight, if there's something you know you feel like your eye looks funny, the best thing to do is go to the emergency room, get yourself seen. Um, any poking or prodding could potentially you know lead to bigger problems. So leave the uh, eye to emergencies the to the eye <laughs> specialist. Yes, I would agree with that. And, and avoid like uh, do it yourself, uh, you know, like uh, at home concoctions and, and like anything that doesn't come out of like a, uh, a bottle that you bought at a pharmacy, it probably shouldn't go in your eye. Yeah, people put uh, funny things in their eyes, I will say, and um, some of them being more harmful than not. So it's always better to ask. It doesn't hurt to ask first. Cool. No, I think that's... Uh... I think it's good advice. I wonder if, if, if you looked up these things on Google, it'll say, do nothing. <laughs> you know, I wonder if it'll say, you know, do nothing and go to the hospital. Maybe, maybe it will. I don't know. We'll have to, I'll have to try that after, uh, after we're done recording here. So um, Megan, Dr. Deborah, Megan Samps, uh, sorry, I should call you. Uh, now listen, we appreciate you taking the time to chat with us again. Um, you are the first person that we're going to now invite back for around three, I think uh, at some <laughs> point in time. Um, because uh, all your episodes have been so popular and uh, we just love talking to you and, and catching up. And um, maybe when we can schedule around three, we could even do it in person because that would be really cool to do. Um, once, uh, once, you know, interacting with other human beings is socially acceptable and allowed. But uh, on that note, I just do want to want to thank you um, from, um, you know, from my side, but also uh, uh, on behalf of the audience for, sharing this information with everybody. I think it's certainly going to be of interest to the listeners. Well, it was really nice to be back. And like I said, we sort of skimmed the surface on a lot of important topics. And if any questions come up in the comment section or anything like that, I'd be happy to, to get back to people. So just let me know. And I would love to come back for a third episode, 
even more so in person. I have both my vaccines and I'm ready to mingle, Sean. So you let me know. Fair, fair enough. Excellent. Thanks again, Megan, for joining us. Thank you, no Megan. No problem.